As AI continues to revolutionize our world, there's a critical conversation we can't ignore. AI safety and security. And that's where HackerOne's AI red teaming comes into play, rigorously testing AI models to prevent them from being misled or exploited. HackerOne employs over 2 million ethical hackers, and 750 of them specialize in prompt hacking and other AI security and testing. So HackerOne isn't just theorizing, they're actively safeguarding AI's future. Just recently, a team unearthed over 100 vulnerabilities in just two weeks. So whether you're at the helm of a startup or steering product innovation at a large company, it's time to prioritize AI security. Visit HackerOne.com slash AI for more. Again, HackerOne.com slash AI. This episode is sponsored by Porkbun.com. Porkbun is a refreshingly different domain name registrar that's different from the other ones like GoDaddy or Namecheap. They've got low prices on hundreds of different domain extensions. They've got everything from .com domains to really cool ones like .pro, .dev, .xyz. Every domain name at Porkbun comes with tons of freebies too, like SSL certificate, who is privacy, DNS, URL forwarding, and hosting trials. Because why pay for things that should be free, right? All these incredible features and tools are backed by incredible support, 365 days a year, and more five-star reviews on Trustpilot from real customers than anyone else. Look, you can get a dollar off your next domain name from Porkbun and see why they're the best domain name register around by using our code. Just go to porkbun.com forward slash rocketchipfm24. That's porkbun, P-O-R-K-B-U-N dot com forward slash rocketchipfm24. You'll save a dollar on your next domain. This episode is brought to you by Gigantic. At Gigantic, you can level up your product skills through live, small group, cohort-based trainings. We're incredibly excited to welcome you to our next cohort of our product strategy training, kicking off in January of 2024. This course will take you through the frameworks that product leaders use at companies like eBay, DoorDash, Groupon, Rent the Runway, in order to scale their teams. It's taught by Ben Foster, a friend of this podcast, who is the former chief product officer at Whoop. So come join us. Go to gigantic.is. That's gigantic.is. And save your seat for our January cohort. Your potential is gigantic, and we're here to help you reach it. Go to gigantic.is to reserve your seat today. Today on the show, we welcome Sam Gortler. She is a product manager at Kickstarter and previously at Asana, where she built the New York team from scratch. So she talks to us about some tips for hiring and building a team, as well as what she's learned being a product manager at some of the fastest growing companies. So stay tuned. It's a good one. Welcome to Rocketship.fm. In season four of Rocketship, we are diving into everything product and growth. Rocketship FM is produced in partnership with Product Collective. We're your hosts, Michael Saka and Mike Belsito. Uh, to, to where I am now, I'm a, a product manager at Kickstarter. Um, and getting here, I'll, I'll kind of backtrack. So before joining Kickstarter, which I'm only about a month in, but I worked at Asana. 
uh, which is project management software, was there for about three and a half years, um, <clears throat> PMing. I, there, I was like the third PM there, and uh, there was probably only like 30 people at the company. So it was a really exciting time to get in early and really influence the product direction and, and make an impact. Um, so there I launched their first native uh, iOS and Android app. That was my Those apps were my first big projects. Um, I also led the uh, 2015 redesign, which was not just like a, a visual refresh, but a complete um, product redesign with a new new branding. So that was a year long uh, adventure. And um, and then I moved to I was doing all of that in San Francisco and then moved to New York to open their first remote development office um, and grew a. Just a small team of about 15 engineers, designers, another PM, user researcher. Uh, And there we worked on a couple more, one advanced feature called uh, dependencies and another feature called boards, which was kind of Asana's answer to Trello. Um, And that I think was, so that was my last launch boards. And that was uh, one that, that was probably the most rewarding for me because we did it with this team that I had known from, you know, day one and in this tiny scrappy office. And uh, we got it done relatively quickly uh, compared to, you know, previous product development cycles. So it felt like a velocity win for sure. Um, And, and it was like a completely, it, it was a complete departure from the status quo of how Asana was used up to the point of that launch. Um, so it felt like kind of new, exciting territory. Um, so I can go into more detail about that, but just rounding out my experience before Asana, I was a product manager at a company called Yammer, which is in a similar space, trying to improve workplace communication and collaboration. Um, we eventually got acquired by Microsoft. So that was really cool to see, you know, the, the team go from startup mo- mode through an acquisition and then land in this, you know, 90,000 person organization. Right. <laughs> so, a lot of, that was an interesting ride for sure. Um, and then before that I was uh, working at a financial analytics software company and just had a variety of roles there that um didn't really directly relate to product management, but um, I got to get to know the product through things like customer support and product marketing. And um, it was like a rotational program. So I got to know all the different departments across the organization, which I think is kind of a good foundation for developing PM skills and being able to understand the the needs and and the communication styles of of different teams uh, across the company. So that was really one of the key roles of a, of a PM. True. True. You know, maybe, maybe in the, is key. An, <laughs> right. Always, an uncelebrated role, but yeah. Yeah. They always say it's like, you know, soft skills get a bad rap, but they're really hard. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so, I mean, the one thing I, I definitely, I, I'd like to start with, um, you know, the, the work that you did at, at Asana building a remote team, um, because I feel like you could directly see the differences between being in San Francisco and, and having, I assume, the team in the office that you were working with versus building even a small remote team. What were some of the big differences there for you? Oh, man. 
Um, I mean, it was like night and day. <laughs> I think for on a personal level, the, the biggest challenge was being by myself for a good chunk of time when I first got out there, like as a, a PM, I think a lot of PMs are extroverted and sort of energized by the, the teams around them. And, um, when you're kind of, when you take, take PMs out of that environment, they, they like are wilting flowers. So yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was struggling a little bit there being like, how do I, I don't, what do I do? I don't have, I don't have my team. So that, that was a challenge. And then, um, also just getting to know the New York tech community. Uh, we didn't have like, not just myself, but, uh, leadership at Asana didn't have a ton of roots in the tech community in New York. So kind of just getting out there and going to a million meetups and like coffees with people to try to figure out where the talent is and what compels them to leave their jobs and, uh, and join you on like a, you know, very uncertain, uh, risky path. So yeah, get figuring out how, and also I'm not a recruiter. So, so right. <laughs> learning all of those things, building a network out here, understanding the tech community and what, and, and the different motivations of engineers here versus San Francisco, because they are, they are pretty different. So that, that was a, a pretty big difference. Um, Can you elaborate on the, the differences in the, the two cities cultures? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, well, one, just sheer size and, um, uh, let's see. Yeah. I mean, San Francisco has a long history or longer history of, um, building technical excellence. Right. Um, and there's a lot of different opportunities, uh, for engineers out there, whereas New York is still up, it still feels up and coming, uh, relative to that. And so there's a lot of engineering talent that is inside of the finance industry or inside of the media industry that those, those are really like the giants out here in New York and they have tech teams, but they're not, um, like SaaS companies. Uh, so they operate slightly differently. So, so those skills that, uh, engineers develop, they are slightly different and the, the things that they are motivated by are slightly different. So yeah, there's a lot of like <sighs> engineering talent that's coming from these kind of other industries and looking to join, um, tech, tech first companies. Like I think of Asana is, is a good example of like, it's a software company. Like we're really making software to help that, that teams use to collaborate. Whereas like Goldman Sachs is their, their product is not that their, their end product is not a piece of software. So, um, so that's different. Uh, what else? I think one of the like really refreshing things about the New York tech community I've found is that um, they're really kind of mission driven and there are so many diverse uh, because because people are in all these other industries, there's so many diverse perspectives and ideas for how to make an impact. Um, so th that's been really cool to see. Like there's been, a, you know, when I was getting out there and hitting the pavement and going to those meetups and coffees and all of that, you know, people had, they were telling me about projects that they were working on related to, I mean, it was during 
the the run up to the presidential election and there was like a lot of political projects that people were using tech in a really innovative way to to make an impact there and um just stuff that that I wasn't um that that, that I was excited to see and and I think pushed pushed my um perspective beyond just like uh purely technical products were there process um, differences when you brought them onto the team? Did you have to to really work on the the process, or is that generally standardized throughout different industries? Um. Yeah. The, I mean, I found the process to be pretty drastically different across companies. Even in San Francisco, I, I felt like process was pretty different from company to company, but. Um, so I think that that was yes to answer your question, <laughs> um, but also that was a little bit to be expected. Uh, we did have uh, basically we were starting from scratch, right? So it was an opportunity for everyone as they joined to influence the the process uh, or lack of process. So it was more of like a co creation of a new process rather than uh, getting people to adjust to an existing structure that had already been in place for a long time. Like, of course, Asana San Francisco had a lot of best practices and we retained all of the the values of that culture, but we also had autonomy to adapt that their process and uh, to meet the, the needs of the New York team and New York environment. So um, with that, really everyone, each person who joined, they brought with them their own set of experiences that could, get us to an even better process than, you know, what any one of us could have conceived of alone. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. When Rain Wilson realized he had a special gift for talking people to sleep, he had two choices. Construct a massive speaker that would blast his voice to every person in the country or invent a talking pillow. AT&T Business eventually talked him into the pillow thing. And backed by a reliable network, the only network with built-in security controls, Sleep With Rain was a hit. Take your ideas to the moon and beyond at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. Now, back to the show. Yeah. What did you look for in those those hires? I assume the resume probably looked a little bit different, but when you were talking to them, when you were when you were uh, scouting them, mm-hmm. what were the qualities or, or what, what kind of drew you to the ones that you eventually hired? Um, well, there's, you know, a certain technical bar that every hire need, new hire needs to hit. Uh, so we maintained that across offices. Um, but one thing I uh, learned and, and sort of suspected at the beginning was that the <clears throat> type of engineer who makes for a really great you know, founding team member in a brand new office is very different from the, you know, 50th or 100th engineer elsewhere. Um, it's a different set of skills and, and preferences, I'd say, uh, to be successful um, for, for that founding team of engineers. So really what we looked for along with technical excellence was um, ambition and um desire to make an impact and solve problems beyond the just writing code. So, you know, we were dealing with things like finding office space and 
figuring out like how to get catered food sometimes and like you know and how to get the wi-fi working like there's a million problems to solve big and small um when you're opening a new office so we needed engineers and everyone on the team to really be interested and excited to take on some of those beyond just whatever they assumed was part of their job description so that kind of sort of ambition and interest in um making an impact beyond your your role uh, was key. And then also the um, I'd say along with that is some sort of, some sort of entrepreneurial spirit, you know, someone who can sort of ha- have the patience to uh, deal with the, the present not being perfect, you know, like there was yes. shoddy like workspace. Like we, we were out working out of a co-working space that, you know, was not anything like the really pristine office that, that our counterparts in San Francisco had. So someone who could accept that, like, we're going to be scrappy now and also have a vision for how we want to evolve this. Um, so those, those kind of skills, I, I don't think I would have necessarily valued as much uh, for engineers in our San Francisco office, but um, opening a new office anywhere, it's not a New York specific thing. I think those, those proved to be really important. And we were lucky to, to get a really good group of people who were um, excited about owning a lot of that work. So tell me a bit about, so you have this new team, um, you guys set out to build the, the boards um, product. Walk me through a bit of the process to, to get there. Do, were you doing discovery? Before, you know, what, what, did that, what did that product process look like? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, it, it was a pretty standard process at the beginning. You know, of course, we weren't the first to conceive of the idea of boards. Um, there's, you know, Trello pioneered the concept. Uh, there were a handful of competitors who had offered similar functionality already on the market. So, uh, there, like, we didn't feel like we needed to necessarily reinvent the wheel. We already really respected, uh, the, the work that already existed out there and wanted to be able to deliver that to, to our users. Um, so we did have models to look at, uh, already on the market. So that definitely fueled our research phase. Um, the yeah the, so so we did some competitive research we uh talked to a lot of customers uh or a lot of prospects about you know what they're looking for and really what we came to realize was that the audience who was drawn to these competitive products uh were much more visual learners than the the our exist asana's existing users right because just the the feature, the board's feature itself. It's it's like a for those listening who aren't <laughs> familiar with it. It's basically sure. like imagine putting sticky notes on a digital whiteboard and then moving those notes across columns that represent different stages in your workflow, and you can really kind of see the project progress that way. Um, whereas the sauna before this feature was more like a list of tasks, and you can check off tasks and and see progress, but it's it's less of like a um, visual experience, I'd say. So we once we dug into the research and got to know these more visual learners who were attracted to, to that board's experience, um, then we started thinking about how we can make that 
we can bring that experience into Asana without it feeling like a tacked on uh, piece of functionality that uh, that we were kind of just copying and didn't necessarily fit into the Asana system. Um, so then the majority of our work was about uh, was thinking about how can we work with existing objects in our data model, existing design patterns, um, and 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 use those or leverage those to build a board experience that meets the needs of these visual learners as well as uh, doesn't uh, you know doesn't alienate existing Asana users or add so much complexity to our current system that uh, it's overwhelming. So so that was kind of the the crux of the problem we had to try to solve um, again because the concept of boards that those problems had already been solved elsewhere and we didn't feel compelled to reinvent the wheel there. Um, and then after research, we did uh, design prototyping. Um, we actually did extensive prototyping, which was really cool. It was the first time I'd actually worked, uh, uh, invested as much in, in a prototype and learned a ton through that process. So that, that was really a win. We worked with an engineer summer intern on that. He didn't get to stick around through the launch, but uh, it was fun. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. And then, yeah, development, we had a really tight timeline. So I often think that time constraints are um, blessings in disguise and they really force us to narrow focus and minimize complexity and bias for action, and um, which ultimately leads to, to shipping better products. So that, that kind of, you know, was a forcing function that, that pushed us, I think, in a, in a, positive direction rather than, you know, toiling over a feature longer than needed. Were there features that, that end up getting cut, uh, that, you know, you guys were originally planning to build? Oh my God. Yeah. Always. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah, there's, I don't think I've ever launched something without cutting a lot of features. Ideally, you make those decisions at the beginning of the development cycle, which is much less painful than towards the end. So because we had that tight timeline, we knew that we couldn't be ambitious with our scope from the beginning. So that that made it easier to uh, get ruthless about prioritization and making those cuts. So for example, um, one thing we that was going to be really, really expensive to build and um, unclear on how valuable it would have been to our target audience was the ability to convert a board to a list. So these are two different layouts um, displaying the same information. Like the equivalent would be like, if you're looking maybe in a Google calendar and you, you switch from like the agenda view versus the the calendar view um, that's kind of like a, similar similar experience than you might have had switching between a board and a list in Asana. Um, and we decided to to cut that pretty early because uh, it would have just been a ton of work and, and the return on that investment um, probably wouldn't have paid off. So there were many, many cuts, but that, that was a big one that, um, you know, took, took a while to convince stakeholders that that was, that was kosher, but we did. Yeah. And it was fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then uh, I guess switching gears a bit, I, do you have a, a time 
when you actually did release, right? We didn't cut, you released a feature and it didn't quite work out or it, it caused issues or um, it wasn't quite what you expected at the beginning of the project. <laughs> yes. <Okay. laughs> um, yeah. So like one of my, uh, biggest disaster launches I've ever experienced was a news uh, navigation for Asana. We, we have like a sidebar where you can access different parts of the product. And it was highly customizable. And the main issue was that it, it organized content in a pretty confusing way. And it also just didn't scale as teams grew and they added more data into our system, the, the sidebar just became untenable. So we were attempting to solve those problems and we um, came up with an alternative design and, and launched that and, and, you know, did research and uh, tried to validate assumptions early, but uh, really still just completely missed the mark. And, and navigation is something that I've learned <laughs> since is super sensitive, right? Because if people can't find their stuff, they, they panic rightfully. So, yeah, um, yeah. so because we were rearranging um, access to people's work in, in Asana, they immediately, when we started AB testing this, we got um, a lot of negative feedback. Like those tweets will, still haunt me from time to time. Um, so we knew like that was a, a launch that, that definitely didn't go as, as planned. But I will say that, um, that experience, I think I learned more from that launch than any of the more successful ones I've been a part of, um, because it, you know, it, it sticks with you and when, when you don't get it right. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Do you like looking back, do you, do you feel like there was research that maybe you missed or, or it's something that, that could have been done to prevent it? Yeah, totally. Um, we have a process called five wise, which is basically when something goes wrong, the crew of people who are involved get together and start asking why <laughs> it went wrong and, and dig five layers deep to try to uncover the root issue. So we did a lot of those um, after this launch. And um, I think the, the main, like, I mean, there were a lot of things we probably could have done differently from, as, from a PM standpoint. I think my biggest lesson learned was trying to make too many changes in one launch and not breaking it down into smaller, more incremental changes, especially with something as sensitive as navigation, trying to do like a complete redesign in one go was, um, was the wrong move. Um, and, and if we had broken it down into, you know, testing one hypothesis about navigation at a time, uh, then we probably would have been able to learn faster and better and been and had disrupted our users um, less. That makes a lot of sense. I, I like that. Um, so can you talk to us a bit about what you're working? I know it's only been a month, um, but is there anything that you can share about what you're working on at Kickstarter today? Yeah, sure. So right, so Kickstarter, I'm, as I'm learning, uh, it serves two types of users. There's 
people um, probably like you and me who come in and back projects and we're like, Hey, what, what are these like independent artists up to? Let's, <laughs> right. uh, let's give them some, you know, some money to, to get their projects off the ground and, and fund their campaigns. And then there's creators who are the ones with all the brilliant ideas that are asking us for, for their money to, to bring them to life. <laughs> and I'm working to support those folks, the creators, and, and helping uh, smooth over the experience of launching a campaign. Uh, right now, we the, we ask creators to, you know, it's a, it's a it's a decent amount of work to launch a campaign on Kickstarter, which I don't think is a bad thing. I think if you have an ambitious project, you know, people are raising millions of dollars here, so we don't want to make it too easy, right? Like <laughs> right. You, you want you want to ensure that the creators are vetted and they're committed to delivering on on their promise with these campaigns. So. Um, there, you know, we ask a, 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 them to to give us a lot of information and, and do some groundwork before launching their campaign. Um, but the the way that we're currently getting that information from them is is not super smooth. So my first project here is just to kind of optimize that campaign creation flow so that um, we can get more creators to launch successfully. And how do they, they measure the the quality? Like, is that something that you're measuring in the development is how are we vetting? And not only are they successful in getting funding, but you know, is there a quality ranking? Yeah. Well, I mean, everything in terms of when you say quality, do you mean like, how do you evaluate success or, um, how do you validate? Yeah, I, I meant more on the inbound. Like, how do you validate that this person is actually going to fulfill on their their promise um, as yeah. best you can? Right? Yeah. yeah. Um, that's a great question. I'd say, like, I mean, there's a couple things we do um, that are just uh, like standard that that I'm not involved in improving this aspect of the process. But creators, once they finish um, like give, giving all of the information they need to, to launch a campaign, they then submit it. And we have an integrity team that reviews all of the submissions and make sure that uh, the campaigns seem viable and meet our, our like rules and, and guidelines for what you can ask for funding on Kickstarter for, because like we're focused on arts and culture, right? But there's a lot of people who want to, um, ca- campaign for political donations or nonprofit donations and stuff. So we so we do a fair amount of vetting through that integrity um, funnel, and and we have to decline a lot of campaigns. Not a lot, I and mean, the majority are accepted. But um, we we vet through that. Um, and then an- other ways are like we ask users to report campaigns that seem sketchy. So. There's an example of like one uh, project. I can't remember exactly what it was, but they were trying to build some sort of drone or something that was like illegal in a specific country. Uh, It was like legal in the U.S., but like all these people in these other countries were backing the campaign, hoping to get the drone when it was illegal there and, and someone on our site reported it. So there's that kind of policing to, to do the vetting. But again, that happens after the, the campaign is launched. So 
Um, yeah, I, th- I think there's definitely room to to improve the betting process uh, up front. So we'll see. Very interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, I mean, thanks for, for joining us today. Um, where can we keep up with you and, and your work online? Um, yeah, thank you for having me. This is super fun. <laughs> uh, best place to keep up with me. I'm not super active on Twitter, but I try sometimes. Okay. <laughs> me too, um, me too. Yeah, you can find me at Sam Gertler. It's S-A-M-G-O-E-R-T-L-E-R. And yeah, that's it. <laughs> Awesome. Well, thank you so much. If you want to find out more about Rocketship.fm, go to Rocketship.fm. It's pretty simple, right? Make sure you subscribe to this podcast, wherever you listen to podcasts, so you don't miss future episodes in this series. And if you like today's episode, tell a friend. Or two friends, or a lot of friends. We would love it if you would spread the word. We, You can sign up for our newsletter. We have partnered with Product Collective, Mike Belsito's company, to bring you even more content each week. So if you sign up for the newsletter, you're going to get content from Rocketship FM. You're also going to get detailed product content from Product Collective, which is incredibly valuable. And as entrepreneurs, it's one of the most important topics for us to stay up on. So go to rocketship.fm and sign up for our newsletter. If you enjoy this content, leave us a quick review um, or tell a friend or share the link on Twitter. Anything helps to get the word out about the show. We really appreciate it. We'll be right back here in just a couple of days.